You're listening to Conversation Balloons, interviews with experts and friends about how the generations can help each other thrive. I'm your host, Leah Farish. Check out this episode. Today, we are welcoming a very special guest, Kathy, and I won't use her last name, and in fact, that is not her real name, but we're keeping her identity rather masked because she will be speaking from her extensive experience as a correctional nurse, in other words, a nurse in juvenile detention for over 15 years, and uh, we won't specify where this this has been, but we want to share uh, the wisdom and insight that she's gotten from working with these kids in this very troubled uh, setting. And thank you for coming, Kathy, and welcome. Thank you, Leah. Do these kids come from the scene of a crime? Do they come from the street, or do, do they come from a home or a, a parent or relative that has said, I can't deal with this child anymore, or they do they usually come from an arrest All situation? of the above. Okay. Uh, and they have, um, we have groups of kids from different gangs that um, are sought out, and the arrests are generally made from wherever they're hiding you know, individual uh, crimes, sometimes they catch them there. Sometimes they're so violent, they're brought in from a home they've been assigned to, say like a group home, mm-hmm. and they're brought in because of violence uh, perpetrated either on the property or other people. Um, you know, frequent runaways, mm-hmm. that type. And it's really difficult to separate the kids that have crimes that are involved more with mental illness Mm. as opposed to gang-related. And uh, I would say the staff has become very aware of who's in what gang. Like, you know, they've had units for Crips and units for Bloods. And uh, I know I mentioned this to someone the other day, and they were like, are gangs really that big of a deal? Well, you know, I, I said... You know, the gang task force will tell you, yeah. It's life and death. It is. It's war. It's constant war. And it's growing because these kids want to be part of a family and part of a group. And the gang satisfies that, which is so much better than being a runaway and being put in detention or put in jail Mm -hmm. to be able to go to a shelter. And uh, the more that the kids are familiarized with crimes and criminal behavior, the more they start acting it out, they learn it in detention, which is one of the dangers of mixing kids, which they don't really have a big choice. They try to separate them, but they learn these behaviors. That was one of the things. uh, uh, It wasn't until the last few years that I ever saw a kid uh, have a kite And a kite in prison is kind of a messaging service, and you fold up paper or a book, connect it to a string, which usually was created out of the T-shirts, and they shoot them from room to room. Uh, They might have food on it. It may have a message to someone. It may be a um, shank, which that's another thing. You know, we were finding shanks daily. And uh, which is like a knife or an instrument made out of, say, a plastic fork, which um, those things are closely monitored, counted after every meal. You have to have all of it there. But they manage to find something, you know, they'll um, uh, but that's changed also that kind of that seasoned criminal behavior. And so we were seeing things that you just saw in adult prisons now are in juvie, you know, Uh, behaviors to try to get placed into the hospital, you know, like beating the glass in, eating the glass and having to go. Oh, we had kids that tore their beds out of the floor to get the nails out of the, the bolts where the beds were bolted into the floor and they would swallow them 
or throw them and break the windows and break the windows anywhere. But that, I mean, those things are like three inches long and probably half an inch wide. How you would swallow them, I don't know. But some are so desperate for drugs that they want to go to the hospital. They'll do something like that just to get high in the ER. And, uh, you know, but these kites also work to like uh, cheeking your medication and they'd give it to someone else for some favor, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, uh, those are kind of interesting, you know. Ingenious. They all, I, they came up with, I mean, I, you know. <laughs> There's some real problems. We, had, we had a real problem with all, I mean, they'd have uh, uh, days where they cleaned out the rooms and, you know, the stuff we would find embedded in the mattresses under the mattresses, mm-hmm. um, hidden in books, hidden in the library between books. Mm-hmm. I mean, we counted pencils that they used every day, counted any tool that they used. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did not have free access to the Internet, but they did have access to computers. Mm. Um, it was a beautiful computer uh, class that they had mm-hmm. in juvie, mm-hmm. but we had to really watch it that they didn't access the general Internet. Mm-hmm. And uh, escape? Did they ever escape or attempt to? Well, actually... they don't like to say tell those stories. <laughs> <laughs> it gives some of the kids ideas. Now the windows are barely big enough to climb through. Yet I know we had uh, one kid that got through in his underwear, got out to the highway, <laughs> and was trying to flag people down in his underwear. <laughs> And I said, I don't know which is worse, escaping or standing on the highway in your underwear trying to flag people down. Who would you, who is it that's going to stop? Yeah. <laughs> but you don't but, want them to pick you but, up under those circumstances. Yeah, we did. But we did have some escapes. And you, generally, this is how an escape happens a transport, like the kid has to go to the doctor or to the emergency room. That's a big plan for mm-hmm. escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would run. Mm-hmm. And so everyone had to be handcuffed and shackled when they went anywhere. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, is you do feel sorry for the kids because they are just kids. So sometimes they wouldn't shackle them. Mm-hmm. Well, they can run like crazy even though they're handcuffed. Mm-hmm. But um, we really had to watch uh, kids that were at risk for escape. We did have uh, some of the staff that was brutally injured. And even handicapped from uh, kids figuring out uh, a, a way to escape, say, late at night. And they would, you know, somehow keep their doors open with paper, whatever they could find. They even did it with toilet paper. and uh, But they escaped through uh, climbing over a fence. And this well, is a fence with razor wire. Well, They're some- all caught. Some resolve, though. Yeah, we've had kids hide in the sewer that escaped, oh. and not for not for long. But you know, um, the deal is they usually do something to get caught again pretty soon. Yeah, but that is very maybe one every other year could escape, mm-hmm. but not likely. Tell us about. A day in the life in juvie, in juvenile detention. Well, once they get admitted into the actual detention facility, they are evaluated by multiple entities. I'm one of them, where I do uh, a medical evaluation. I talk to them at length. Uh, We focus on not just physical, but mental and spiritual, where they are. Um, there are little clues that I get as I talk to them and develop that relationship of trust. But once they pass all those things, they don't have any contagious diseases or any medical need that is emergent. They're admitted into the population, which means um, they are assigned a unit, a single room uh, by themselves that's locked down at night, opened in the morning. And uh, they begin their day with uh, breakfast in a cafeteria-like setting. Uh, They 
will shower afterwards. Some showers are done at night, but it's pretty normal for a day. It's what a day should be. They shower. They have some um, chores that they have to do, and then they go to school. Uh, The schooling is provided by the public school system, and uh, they have a full day of school. They do have a break for lunch, and they have a break for uh, physical ed, inside, outside, football, whatever. They want to play that day. Um, In the afternoon, various programs come in to help them. And it could be something like music. Uh, It could be educational. There's just a variety of groups that want to come in to help these kids. We've even had people come in and teach them to bake, uh, teach them how to cook, uh, make a salad, and uh, it's amazing how a lot of these things are foreign to them. Hmm. And then they have uh, evening meals, and they do get a snack at night. They have a day room where they can watch TV, uh, play games, ping pong, etc. And then they prepare for bed and go to bed. And it's pretty much the normal schedule, not the environment, but the normal schedule of what they should have been doing. Uh, most of them haven't lived like that. Hmm. Do they wear they wear their own clothes, or are they are given clothes to wear? Uh, for this facility, and I believe most of them that I have visited, they wear the assigned clothing from the facility, which is very simple. Um, it is generally pull-up jeans, not regular jeans, but elastic waist jeans and a T-shirt. And uh, they're careful with the coloring that there's no gang representation. Mm. Um, Shoes can become an issue because people's feet have different problems, but they do provide shoes and underwear, all the basic needs, including toiletries. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nothing from the outside is allowed in, with the exception of prescriptions, which I controlled. Mm -hmm. And... uh is there reading material in their room? What are they allowed in their unit, their individual space? Uh, and that has changed over the years. When I initially started to work in juvenile detention, the kids were allowed to have one book in their room, and that was a Bible. Hmm. And they started tearing the pages out of it and stuffing it into the locks to keep the doors from locking. Hmm. And it became such a problem that the staff was having to check each room out each night or throughout the day Mm. that they uh, disallowed any more books at all in there. Some kids that are on discipline that may be in their room for a day or so, they would occasionally allow them to have a different book that they were reading, but that ended when they started, when they changed their behavior. Um, But they do have books in a, like a library in the day room, mm-hmm. and it's amazing the number of kids that read. The books are censored. Some are. They don't allow certain books in there that um, encourage violence, and uh, they're all screened by administrative people. Very mm-hmm. careful. Then plus they have the library for the school, and it may be assigned reading where all the kids are reading the same book. Mm-hmm. So um, during the the time that you were there, have you seen a change in the kids that have come in? Dramatically. When I first started to work there, um, you know, the kind of crimes that the kids committed, sometimes I was surprised they were admitted into detention. And the judges were very careful to not admit kids that they felt like the environment would be more of a detriment than them being, say, on home arrest. And uh, they did have a a program um, where supervised that they would have a worker that would watch a kid from home. And uh, that worked out great. But most of the crimes are things like petty theft, um, fighting, school truancy, um, some drugs. But uh, over the years, the drugs became more serious, the mental illness became more serious, and the level of violence. And uh, recently, the 
I kept statistics uh, and still do on kids that were on um, mental or any psychiatric medication. And it was average in uh, the, in around 2000, about 18%. And uh, by this year, it's almost 50% of the kids are on psychiatric medication. Mm. So that's changed. Um, Plus the, there was a federal mandate that was concluded and they reached the ability to do it in 2021. And they moved all of the YOs, which are youthful offenders, which are far more serious crimes. We're talking uh, guns, gun violence, uh, murder, rape, uh, grand larceny, those types of seasoned criminals is what I call it. Uh, They brought in seasoned criminals that would tear the facility down, each other and the staff. It became actually dangerous. Mm -hmm. And uh, that reduced the number of kids that were allowed to come into juvie because they couldn't, the the amount of supervision that was required intensified. And um, so you've got a mix of, say, a 10-year-old that's in there for bringing a knife to school versus an 18-year-old who has committed murder. And you can't mix those kids. Um, you get a whole nother problem when you do. And gang-related. Um, you know, the gang force in any police department in any city, when you really find out the level of gang involvement, uh, you realize how serious it is. And so these kids went from committing petty-type crimes. We had the occasional serious one, but to older kids who feel like they're at war. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what, so, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I, on my own, started doing a little survey with kids that came in, and I would ask them a couple of leading questions. But I said, do you feel like you're at war? And uh, universally, they all said yes. And usually they would say, what do you mean we are at war? And so you have this mentality of an older child, say 16, 17, eight years, 18 years old, they have been involved in gang involvement in their neighborhoods, and um, they, they feel like they have to protect themselves, and so they have guns. And uh, I know one boy uh, really openly talked with me about it and said how I did not understand, and I didn't, but there were gunshots uh, drive-by shooting at his house. And he put his little sister on the ground and got on top of her to protect her. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking he went and called the police, but that's not what he did. He went inside with his little sister and got his gun and went back out. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, why would you not call the police? You know. And so there's that basic mistrust of authority mm-hmm. that these kids also come in with. In detention, they don't, and we represent the police to them. I didn't personally, but I still was under that authoritative image. And uh, uh, anyway, gun, to them, that was no big deal. Mm. And I just, he didn't even think of calling the police. But so, um, you know, that level of violence has changed dramatically. And younger. And younger, people. yeah. Uh, you know, we'd get, a lot of brothers that came in together that it was their way of life, their family way of life. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. They'd have like a dad in prison, another uh, brother that was incarcerated. And then they fully expected to live out their life in prison also, but they were just doing what they do. Hmm. And what about the girls? What did you see in the female offenders? Oh, that and changed. Has that changed? That changed also. Girls have become more violent. And uh, the in the early on, the girl we didn't have a lot of girls. Uh, we'd maybe have, um, say, 30 kids, about five girls to 30 kids. And uh, they were segregated, but it became where they had to put girls in their own hall, but they were on a unit with boys. And so they would put the uh, less offended or less offenders, uh, you know, theft, 
little things, the mm-hmm. 10-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it became to the point where most of the girls that came in, we had girls in for murder, uh, 14-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And uh, there seemed to be just uh, a basic disrespect for their own life and the life of others. They didn't view life uh, in what you would expect in a girl. I remember telling the girls before that, uh, you know, you should be having slumber parties and painting your fingernails, not worried about having STDs, whose baby's daddy was going to come after you and who you needed to cut up or fight. (laughs) And it was just, but they had lived that. It wasn't new for them. Uh, We had a lot of sex trafficking early on and still do. And um, you have to develop a relationship of trust. And it takes time for these girls to open up about that because they are so afraid of retribution if they tell. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's worldwide. And uh, it's not obvious except to people that have uh, been involved in it. And uh, are they ashamed of it? Yes. You know, they're not, um, but they're scared and they feel like there's no way out, Mm -hmm. that they don't have a choice. But yeah, we're getting a lot more girls that are what I'd call seasoned criminals involved in these gang wars, uh, murder, um, a lot of theft, and but also quite a bit of um, human trafficking. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I imagine you have the the higher level of the pyramid of pimps and um, dealers rather than just a kid who's found in possession of drugs. Or- Absolutely. And uh, the pimps are proud of it. Uh, we had one boy that came in that had some dire medical needs, so I saw him every day. So I developed a little different relationship with him than I did with a lot of the kids because I would see them a little less frequent. But he would talk about his baby girl, that his uh, girlfriend was about to have a baby. And then he'd talk about his girls, which was he was pimping out several girls and uh, quite organized with it. You know, we got into debt. Quite the entrepreneur. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Had a hotel room, the whole thing set up. And uh, so I compared I told him a story about a little girl that that how his little girl was going to get pimped out, and I could see the anger rising up in him. You mean when when he would when he would father a child himself? Yeah, yeah. And he came in the clinic, so I said, "When you uh, have this little girl, there's this guy, and he's going to take her, and he's going to start teaching her about two years old about sex. By the time she gets a certain age." And I went on at length with this story, and. I could just see his hackles rising up, but I did it on purpose. And I said, that's what you're doing to somebody's baby girl. Somebody loves that girl, and you're doing that to someone's girl. That kid changed just in a moment of consideration and comparison and seeing the truth about what he was doing. And um, it was amazing. I mean, just that little story and thinking and that's one of the things that the kids really benefited from was to sit down and reason with them. I don't know if they've experienced an adult doing that in a non-accusatory way. And in an individual. And set. that's the deal, one-on-one. And um, I valued these kids uh, individually as a human being. You know, I looked them in the eye and uh, developed a relationship of respect with them. They were dependent on me also medically. So I had a, uh, it was need-based. They needed something from me. But I was able to use that opportunity to help teach them just some life lessons. And, uh, you know, some of them would sign up to come see me on sick call just to talk. (laughs) And, uh, they asked me not to tell, <laughs> but they were there just to talk or some little thing like they were worried they were deformed or, you know, just, uh, but, you know, they would do that. And then you treat them as a human being. You give them something to lose. They suddenly start having value in themselves. And that's the most dangerous person alive is someone who has nothing to lose. 
And so, you know, that's what staff, that's what I did with whatever skills that we had to extend to them that they had value as a human being. And um, it's hard to break that ice, though, because they don't trust anybody. Tell us a little more about how you break that ice. And I'm just dying to know if there's anything other people outside of the intimacy of a nurse's appointment could glean. Absolutely. Uh, Interest. You know, these kids are covered in tattoos. And it shouldn't be offensive, but when you see a kid covered in tattoos, if you're in a situation where you can casually, positively remark and say, what does that mean? Tell me about your Yeah, tell me your story. Mm -hmm. They will more than gladly tell you because you're interested in them and they're not used to that. The other thing is listening to them and try to ask them questions that would help you learn from their perspective. I know one thing that um, happened with a boy in detention who was black, and I am white, and he asked me, he started this thing with the kids, and he said, do white people, you know, tell their kids this? And so all the kids started joining in, both black, white, whatever race, and were asking, do white people do this? (laughs) And, you know, I thought, what a wonderful conversation because there was no uh even though it was about racism it wasn't racist it was honest conversation Mm. and uh, i think if people could also look at these kids and realize they're not just thugs they are human beings many of them fight every day just to eat Mm. um you know drugs selling drugs criminal behavior is a quick fix for the moment, but not in the long run. It may give them food for that day or satisfaction for a moment, but it's it's not worthy of living, of life. You know, these kids carry a lot of guilt. Mm. Um, also, uh, inter- don't be afraid, be respectful, but don't assume that just because they've committed a crime that they're going to, that they feel good about it. Like I said, they may in the moment that they're doing it, but, uh, you know, they have opinions. The other thing is the language is so limited. You know, most of these kids uh, would curse me when they first came in. And don't react to it. View it at more, their behavior is more of a symptom of the chaos that's going on inside then it isn't about you, you know. And so if you can learn when people are um, using expletives or are, uh, you know, acting out towards you, that it's a symptom of what's going on in them and often a visual representation of how they feel. And uh, it helps you to have some compassion. In fact, when you do that with everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Good but... Uh, you know, these kids, they knew that I cared about them. That was one thing. And, but I did that with little things also. Um, The kids would say, I'd notice they have really chapped lips and I would prepare something for them to have to stop their chapped lips. And so it's, it's seen individual need too. And uh, uh, it's just, beginning to look at people at, in a different way, you know, but they're also afraid. They're afraid in their own home. And you can imagine what that feels like. I mean, cause home is supposed to feel safe. And for most of these kids, it's not. And that's one reason they're on the street. They don't want to, it's not that they don't have a home is they don't feel safe. They feel safer on the street than they do in their own home. Wow. You mentioned uh, drug use, and, and what percent of these kids are dealing with addiction when they come in? So many of them are high and out of their mind when they come in. Mm-hmm. Um, the percentage on psychiatric medication is getting close to 50%, but those are the ones that are being treated. Uh 
I would evaluate kids when they came in. Um, I was concerned over time, and since heroin is back, um, and then the fentanyl danger, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know if we kept records of how many ki- we. The the idea was every kid that came in was high, you know, and uh, so I would evaluate them. How high were they in danger of going through withdrawal? Were they actually an addict or just high at that moment? But most of them had at least had a couple of joints of marijuana down, and uh, but most of the kids had were, had some sort of drug affect, and I would wait three to five days uh, to evaluate the kid again and see who they really were. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you mean by drug affect? Um, the the drugs affect them so much that they're not able to articulate. I mean, we have kids that would be drinking toilet water, having hallucinations, um, vomiting. You know, if they were very ill, I would send them before they were admitted into detention back to the hospital to get stabilized. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the kids are uh, have such severe addiction that they have to be admitted into a um, facility to detox safely. Right. And... Um, you know, we didn't get many alcoholics. I was surprised about that. Most of it was opiates. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in detention, it is in order for them to get psychiatric medication, they have to leave the facility to go to a psychiatrist, which means a transport. The more transports you have, the more risk you have for uh, escape. Um, and then there's not enough staff to transport. So say a kid, you know, makes an attempt on their life. You got to take them to the hospital. You have to lock down the entire unit for safety because there's not enough staff to take a kid to the hospital and manage the kids. So at this time, lockdown is a serious problem. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it can be for days. There's so many problems going on mm-hmm. or injured staff. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very dangerous. I mean, you have to be observant and alert at all times. Mm-hmm. I will say this. We had kids that dealt in drugs mm-hmm. and uh, had a boy that, that was selling something called Croc, which is a... Um, type it's a mix of heroin kind of a synthetic heroin and it causes uh deterioration or um necrosis of certain parts of your body not any particular one but it can happen anywhere it'll eat the muscle off the bone and uh, or eat a abscess in your brain and he was selling that and uh so i challenged him about it and he said I said, you know, you're you're basically killing people with what you're selling, and you know what it is, and you know what it does. And his comment to me was, they don't care. And oh. if they don't care, I don't care. So there's this general um, problem with valuing individual human life, their own or yours. Mm-hmm. And you've got to remember that um, in juvie because... You know, they're not thinking who's going to get hurt when I do this thing. It's just wild flailing and um, aggression. Yeah. Well, you you talked about winning their trust and helping in the overall effort, which we're all hoping for, is that there will be some kind of transformation as a result of this. What were some things you did to convince these kids that they had value and to, to you know, find a heart of flesh rather than the heart of stone that uh, mm-hmm. they seem to come in with? Um, one example, um, and it's one by one. It's not done in, in groups. It right. has to be done one by one. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we had a little boy that a lot of 
people were complaining about his bullying. He was bullying kids that were mentally deficient, physically deficient. Um, he was really a leader, but he would use other kids to do his bidding. Mm. And he was not really likable because he also tried to use uh, staff, use me. Mm-hmm. You know, I really didn't like him that much. But, you know, he one day was suffering with a really bad headache. And so I treated him. And later I came in and um, he said, I just want to thank you for mm-hmm. helping me because it really helped my headache. Mm-hmm. And it came to me while I was sitting there. Uh, these kids, they don't know fairy tales. They have no moral compass. They have nobody teaching them, you know, how to be a, a decent person. Mm. And so I thought of the good old golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I wrote it on a kite, <laughs> on a tiny piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, I gave it to him and I said, this is one of the secrets to life. It's a treasure. I said, don't let anybody else see it. You keep it and hide it, (laughs) going against everything I knew. And I said, but tomorrow I want to talk to you about it after you read it. And so he came in my office the next day, and um, he said, where did you find that? I go, why? He goes, I've memorized it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He said, it's changed my life. And he said, are there more like that? I said, yeah, there's a lot of life lessons, you know. And he was, you could, you could palpably feel the difference. And uh, later on, one of the teachers came in and he said, what did you say to this kid? Mm -hmm. And I told him, he said, he is a completely different person. He is helping kids and has kind of become the defender of some of these kids. And I thought that one little bit of truth changed that kid's perspective mm-hmm. enough that, you know, but what it took, because what I wanted to do was chew him out and kind mm-hmm. of grind him into the ground himself because he was a bully. Mm-hmm. But that one little golden rule was what changed his attitude of bullying to that of being kind. And, uh, I mean, it did a work inside this kid. Mm. And uh, uh, he was he never came back, which recidivism is like 80%. Most of the kids I know, their mama and daddy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he never came back to juvie, and he left a different person. Mm. And it, just from one thing, but it was my, it was multiple encounters, you know, fixing his headache, not chewing them out, mm. that he was able to receive that. Mm-hmm. And so if chewing somebody out or putting them down to try to fix them worked, none of those kids would be in there. <laughs> Good you point. know, They've just, been chewed out quite a bit. Yeah. If you think of them as a thug, they're going to stay one, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, but, you know, that's one thing. But also that attention to individual need. And uh, mm-hmm. I think more parents need to have conversations with their kids that are civil and not always challenging their behavior, Mm. you know, but like presenting to him, this is a secret of life. I'm giving you a gift Mm -hmm. and I didn't have to challenge his behavior that did it, you know, but those, and then reading stories, that's another thing. They don't know fairy tales Mm -hmm. and just little uh, stories that encourage good behavior or kindness. Mm-hmm. And, like Aesop's uh, fables a, and exactly. Proverbs. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I did a lot. I wrote, um, um, the kids had a lot of anxiety. And so I had a whole list of things that you do for anxiety. I gave them uh, ways to breathe, exercises to do, things like that. Most of them have trouble sleeping because most of them smoked marijuana at night to sleep. I didn't realize there was this big of a problem with sleeping uh, mm. with young kids. And this is all of them. They all wanted, came to me and asked for sleeping pills. But um, anyway, we just, I'd go through numbers of things to try to help them deal with it. But one of the things was I would um, 
give them like a prescription for things about anxiety. And I did give them verses from the Bible about anxiety. Mm-hmm. And uh, those kids relished any little simple sentence that could change their perspective. Oh. And they always came back wanting more. Oh, You know, I didn't tell them to read a book, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, sometimes I would write them in magic marker on their hand. Mm-hmm. And they would come back and want to talk about it more. Their vocabulary is limited mostly to expletives as far as expressing things. And so I did work with the kids on words. And I don't know if this word's allowed on the podcast or not, but bitch was one. Mm-hmm. They would kill you over the word if you called them a bitch. And so uh, I went to the to the floor because it caused such a such turmoil, that word, and presented it as just a word and how it could be said positively. I asked them if they could give me exam, you know, different things. And I said, do you all understand? It's just a word. It's not, it. it's how you receive it, what they intend. You don't have to receive it like that. Mm-hmm. And giving them some power over a word causing a war. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they were, the kids were very sensitive to, um, Certain words, and when I say sensitive, I mean reactive. They would mm-hmm. want to kill you, mm-hmm. you know, over certain words. Even just me saying that would would make them trigger them. suddenly. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Tell us some more about some some moments uh, that were intense for you. That um, kids that stay on your mind, you know, without revealing mm-hmm. identity. You know, feel free to change details, but. One of the things I was known for was making kids cry. And the staff (laughs) did not listen to my conversations. They would sit in another room, but the kids always had to have a guard with them when they came to see me, but not necessarily within hearing distance. But when you touch someone is one thing, but when you touch their heart, they all cried. Mm -hmm. And they would start crying because... We were talking about something that mattered, and it touched their heart, and they were revealing that. And uh, uh, so many stories, um, some funny, some sad, some horrible. But um, I have many kids that still haunt me, and I do run into them out in public. Mm. And uh, they always run up and give me a hug. Do you remember me? Mm. That's the first thing they say. Do you remember me? Mm. Because they knew that they were important, mm-hmm. and and I do remember them. And uh, but we had a boy that came in. Uh, this was fairly recent, and he had black contacts in both of his eyes for the purpose of appearing evil. Mm. And so when I turned to look at him when he came and sat down in the exam chair, I said. Oh wow, we got a little demon possession here. <laughs> I said, "You need to get those contacts out." And he laughed and he said, "How did you know?" I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "I'm part of a satanic group uh here in town." And he goes, "I mean the real deal. We meet and do sacrifices and all this." He said, "That's why I was arrested." I said, "Well, what were you doing?" He said, "I was in line at an event and my uh, object was to kill the person in front of me, but the police got there and found my knife and arrested me before I did that. Mm-hmm. And I realized that boy, not just that boy, but that woman, also it he was rescued. You know, the detention facility was not a bad place for him, but he was being rescued, and. Um, as time went on between the doctor and I and a lot of counseling, that kid changed. Mm. And uh, But it just stayed in my mind how often are intents not realized. Do kids come in and they haven't done the thing that they were planning to do? But they also have had no one to reason with about, you know, just random murder, you know. And... Um, you know, but it also made me aware of what some of the groups are in our location. Mm-hmm. 
But we had um, the kids that haunt me. Um, I know one I've told you about before, Leah. Um, he would take, we had to restrict, we had to not just check the content of a book, but how the book was made. Because the books had, some of them had staples in them. And this kid would take the staples or a paper clip, anything that he could find, and thread it into the veins in his hand. And uh, he was tortured mentally, and he had been in and out of mental institutions since he was 10 years old. And so he really had experienced no home life. Um, I felt like he did not, he committed crimes, but under the duress of mental illness and drug addiction. Mm. And um, anyway, he, his eyes were just so empty, but he found comfort with, uh, with me sitting with him in the cell. And he asked me if I would come every 15 minutes and just sit with him. Mm. Uh, hold his hand, and he said, you know, I feel safe when you're in here. Oh. And he had all sorts of hallucinations, uh, voices that would tell him to uh, take the tile on the floor and slit his throat, different things like that. So not only was he, he in pain mentally, but he was in pain physically because we had to restrain him. Ooh. And the law is such you can... Uh, restrain them for a short period of time. I mean, like minutes, but they have to be under constant uh, supervision. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has aged out of the system, but was recently brutally um, attacked and injured in prison. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but he would stir that up in people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's where the, realizing it's from within them, it's not anything you're doing, and it's not personal. Mm -hmm. So you have to be kind of special to work with those kids like mm -hmm. that. Um, had a little girl that was uh, in DHS, the Department of Human Services, and um, she was she was trying to get other girls to do um, prostitution with her. Mm -hmm. and told me that I did not understand her life or what made her happy. Now, I was treating her for four major sexually transmitted diseases. She was living that lifestyle. She made a lot of money. I said, do you have anything to show for it? You know, a house, a car, jewelry, makeup, clothes, what? Nothing. Mm -hmm. And But she said, you don't understand what makes me happy? And I didn't, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, but uh, it touches me just the way, the different ways that these kids think. Mm -hmm. uh, that lack of hope, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, uh, it is frustrating because the average stay, I believe now, is 21 days in detention. Is how much effect do you have? Uh, in that short of a period of time, when, say, a week of it is just the child becoming sober enough to be able to receive some information. Mm. A lot of them are so tired and so malnourished, you know. Mm. Um, a lot of them I would just leave an order to uh, that they needed to sleep and eat and nothing else, mm. you know. Mm. But um, it, it, uh, it does leave a hole in my heart that I'm not able to do more. But I have witnessed entering uh, and seeing other kids out in the public that it did matter, mm. you know, that you saw them as a person of value. Mm -hmm. And they're not still in no, trouble. They, they, yeah, they were, they would, the ones that were in trouble would hide from me, <laughs> and I would seek them out and say, what do you do? The other ones would run up to me, and they would say, do you remember me? Oh. And then they would say, I'm doing good. Because oh, yeah. they knew I was thinking, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? So what percent of these kids uh, can read well? That's another thing that's changed. Mm. Uh, and you have to respect it and be very careful because uh, with the public school system in there, 
at any given time, uh, I'd ask the teachers, you know, who all can read, who all, and they would say, you know, I've got a class of 14 and that none of them can write their name. Mm. And then they would have, you know, may, and so those kids would have to have special tutoring. Um, then you'd have kids that came in and wanted to learn to write cursive, <laughs> and which was amazing. And we'd have kids that came in really high IQs, mm-hmm. uh, really surprising. And um, uh, that at any given time, probably a third of them have at best fourth grade level. And that's, uh, you know, 18-year-olds. There's A lot of them couldn't read. Mm-hmm. Some of them had dyslexia, mm-hmm. you know, different problems. But the one thing they had was pride. And uh, you didn't always, they had been able to cover so well. And so I had to very carefully see if they were able to read or not. Mm-hmm. And then gently introduce the idea of someone helping them with those skills. Mm-hmm. And so we had a, a specialist that came in and helped kids learn to write, do different things like that. And that was done one-on-one. Mm-hmm. And so we, if we knew that, we would also have to inform, or I would inform the teacher, this kid can't read, don't call on them. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, don't shame them or embarrass them. Another thing that um, I would do with the kids individually is um, look up their name, the meaning of their name. I would write it out and then write full out, write the meaning, and to encourage that character to be developed. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I gave it to the kids as a gift. Mm-hmm. On their birthdays, I would give them what their name means, a special little card. But it was amazing how the kids would feel like that's the character that they could develop or that's what they had in them. And uh, uh, I did it for, you know, just about anybody that came in the office. Oh, but they would it. have that paper with their name and what their name meant, mm-hmm. you know, and it, like courage. They were just, they were generally positive attributes. Sure. You know, much like the Hebrews did. Right. And uh, anyway, it was just fun to see the kids react to it. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes they would actually make signs of their name and the attributes and color around the initials and do artwork with mm-hmm. them. But that was a lot of fun to do that. But it was amazing how they, a little pride rose up in them. Yes. One other thing that we did was none of these kids had ever heard their heart. Hmm. And so I would ask them, do you want to hear your heart? And give them a stethoscope and put, put the stethoscope on their heart. And Every time, without exception, they would go from a listening face, and then they would break into this big smile the first time they heard their heart. Oh. And they all were like, I'm alive. And oh. I go, yes, you're alive. There's stuff going on in there. Uh-huh. But they were so um, thrilled to hear their heart, and which to me, I mean, it was like a gift to me to see that listening face and then break into a smile. But I did that often to help them recognize their individuality, you know, and their humanity. And uh, oh they that that's something that is so much fun for someone who's never heard their heart. Uh You know, helps them to plant their feet, realize where they are and who they are, you know. Right. How about what percent of uh, kids or gender confused. That's another thing that's happened. Um, you didn't see any. Uh, probably until the last four years. And it's been a problem because we have boys coming in in full female attire who don't want to be on a unit with boys, but want to be on a unit with girls. And that's not allowed. And they want to continue to dress as a female on a male unit, which sets them up mm-hmm. for uh, quite a bit of violence. Mm-hmm. And they know that. That's why they want to be on the unit. And so it is um, difficult, to say the least. And so usually the boys that are transgender are put on the unit that has girls, but they're not put with girls. Mm-hmm. 
they're still put on a haul with boys, mm-hmm. and we have to keep an eye out for them because most of them uh, almost project it on purpose to stir up fights. That happens a lot. Mm. But there's a lot of that, a lot of um, gender confusion that occurs, and more so than ever. And, uh, and, and truthfully, I'm kind of confused about it. Uh, most of the kids that came in that say they were 13, um, I would, uh, I felt for them. But in that confusion is just a myriad of problems. And so we tried to kind of set it on the shelf and have that a non-issue while they were in jail Mm -hmm. and just to protect them. But we could not, uh, you have to be careful not to to, uh, um, treat them special. I mean, it's jail. Well, Kathy, do you have any parting words for parents and teachers? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, to look at their kids as individuals, sit down and talk to them and really listen to them, ask questions, um, be involved in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to look at them and it can't always be about business you know the other thing is is watch what your kids are watching um, on TV uh, what they're reading if they're reading and uh, or suggest things but um, or on their phones or on their phones you know that's another thing yeah and uh while they supposedly don't allow phones in public schools, they're in there. Um, but the social thing, that's where a lot of these wars with the kids start, is online, on the phone. You know, Facebook. Um, um, you know, that's one of the ways that the probation officers track kids is on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And they're on there showing their guns and um, promoting what they do. And that's how a lot of them are found out. Mm-hmm. Spend and, time with your kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Know them. Problems are the teachers are, you know, you get a classroom of fifteen kids, you can know them, uh, but you start getting thirty, thirty-five kids. It's all about business. Mm-hmm. It's hard to know. Mm-hmm. What have what have been the the most common spiritual needs of these kids? Funny, you should ask that. Um, I asked the kids if they wanted me to pray for them. And I only had one that said no. Wow. <laughs> but I would ask permission to pray for in front of them. Mm-hmm. And I would tell them the difference in Judy is we pray with our eyes open. <laughs> <laughs> but they all, and then as a result of asking them that, they made it a point and requested it. Uh, it was amazing the number of kids that had uh, parents that wanted to try to get them into church or get them into something that was, you know, Boy Scouts, mm-hmm. <laughs> something that would encourage them spiritually. Mm-hmm. But uh, many of them had no moral compass. They had nothing to base their values on other than what they had learned on the streets or, mm-hmm. you know, more a consequence than actually a decision. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, they needed to be taught some moral compass. They needed to be taught some values. And that takes time mm-hmm. and opportunity, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for sharing your insights on Conversation Balloons and, uh, Keep up the good work with kids. It's so needed. I love them. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today and for sending up some great conversation balloons. We want to encourage everyone to rate us and review us. Subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Uh, Thanks to Caleb, our producer, and hear from us next time. Thanks for listening to Conversation Balloons. Look for more episodes and information at leahfarish.com. 
That's L-E-A-H-F-A-R-I-S-H dot com. And follow me on Facebook and Instagram 